Well, I am thrilled for our conversation today. This is one of those conversations that I feel in many ways is representative of uncharted territory. And we're going to be getting into a book today uh, with a couple of authors. Uh, it's called QAnon, uh, QAnon Cross, QAnon Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories. I think about the last cu couple of election cycles. I think about how much this concept of conspiracy has started to peak, and not just in a secular sense, but really when you look in churches. Uh, I look at the distrust, the skepticism, the cynicism, the erosion of sort of this collective ability to be able to trust and love your neighbor. We're seeing that people are becoming a little bit more calculated and even at times cold-hearted in the church. And I, I really want us to ask ourselves, why do we believe what we believe? And if there are different things that maybe compete or different things that seem to tear apart our belief system, we have one of two options. One is to dig down and dig deep and become curious, or the other is to become very defensive and rigid, which unfortunately is beginning to happen more and more. So I've got a couple of authors today. I'm really excited. Mike and Greg, welcome to the channel. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Really, really, really grateful to have you. Thank you for making the time uh, to to share about this book. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book. Yeah, so I'm actually I'm a philosophy professor um, at Eastern Kentucky University. Grew up in Kansas City, hence the Chiefs hat because I suffered. Yeah, we are. For me, you know, I went to Kansas State. Um, as an undergrad, political science, worked actually in campus ministry for a few years, and then just decided I wanted to, didn't want to do that the rest of my life. And I'd taken several philosophy classes as an undergrad, and that's just became passionate about it through doing some reading, uh, first in apologetics, and then uh, actual philosophy, decided I wanted to get a PhD. So I got a master's at Talbot School of Theology, uh, Biola University, um, back in long time ago, I guess in 2000, and then did my PhD at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and I've been here since then. And so getting to this book, um, I mean, my focus really in recent years, stuff related to the common good, but cultivating character, like those are the, the really central kind of things I think and write about. But, and, and it's related to this, of course, my chapter actually connects humility with this, but I just, I started to get concerned and my my standard thing is when i hear a bunch about something i just kind of ignore it whether it's mm. technology or cultural stuff and then if it hangs on you know i sort of give in and this is one that i just <laughs> it's not going away um and yeah i, I knew there was some interest in one publisher um i knew greg and i had talked some about this and so um yeah rather than co-writing one we decided to co-edit this book um, because we thought it would be better to get like expertise from a wide variety of people from different mm -hmm. fields that they could bring to bear on this issue. So we've got other philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars, uh, communications professors, uh, information uh, sort of technology expert, uh, pastor who's also does some teaching. So anyway, um, that's kind of how we decided to write it. And we just, the more that we, the more I started looking into it and just realizing how prevalent it is, not just in the culture, but in different parts of the American church. And so we wanted to provide a, basically a resource for people to, who have questions about this, how to, how to deal with it, how to have good relationships and help family members and friends who maybe are, you know, knee deep in some of the conspiracy theory stuff. So that's the kind of big picture. Very cool. 
My name is Greg Bach, and I teach philosophy and religion at the University of Texas at Tyler. And like Mike, I also did my master's degree at Talbot School of Theology, but uh, a bit later than, than he did. And I went on to uh, the University of Tennessee and did my PhD there and decided to do my research in ethics and specifically bioethics. Um, recently, I've been doing work in forgiveness, the ethics of forgiveness, the ethics of anger, and actually, that's my contribution to this book, besides being editor, is also the chapter on anger, mm. uh, asking the question whether conspiracy theorists and mainly all of us who approach this topic, whether we have an anger problem we need to deal with. Uh, so hopefully that'll come up in the conversation. But the reason why um, I wanted to be a part of this project was because I have friends who believe this stuff and I was scratching my head trying to figure out how do I respond to them? How do I, how do I, what, do, how, what do I think about these things? And so um, I thought it would be great to, to work on something like this, to put together what we hope to be a toolkit that we can just uh, hand off to people, people in the church who are struggling, scratching their heads too, trying to figure out how to respond um, to people in the pews. Um, I, don't, I don't know if conspiracy theorists themselves will read this book or whether it would be helpful for them, but at least for the rest of us uh, who have friends and family who believe these things and people maybe who are on the fence I'm trying to figure it out, um, pastors in churches who are trying to deal with people. Hopefully this will be helpful for them. Yeah, I certainly think that uh, people need resources. And I think that one of the things that people are very much is disoriented. When you have something that happens on wide, like a wide scale sort of thing, like a pandemic or a national election, and the media outlets are saying different things. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like reality itself is up for grabs. And so I do think this is a very timely piece that's very, very needed. Okay, I want to start out with a basic definition of what it means to talk about a conspiracy theory. And in this book, you guys do a very good job. The multiple authors do a great job of kind of taking a stab at it. it I think whether it be conspiracy theory, the term evangelical, which we're going to talk about, I think sometimes getting a static definition is hard, right? Because we're talking about something um, that kind of depends on the context. And so I just want to start out with a, a basic definition of what is a conspiracy theory. I'll take this one. Um, I first want to start out by saying, as you've mentioned, it's, it's hard to find a definition here. And, and in our book, we don't have a unified definition. I'll give you a basic one, but I want to acknowledge that different contributors are working with different definitions, and we hope that that's actually illuminating. Mm -hmm. um, but a basic, I think, broad definition might be something like this. An explanation of an event in terms of some small group of people working in secret. Mm -hmm. And they're not usually working to help people out. They're usually working for some evil purpose, some malicious mm -hmm. or nefarious ends. And so that's what I would say a conspiracy theory is. But I mean, from there, it gets, just gets more complicated because some conspiracy theories are true and some conspiracy theories aren't. And then you got to decide, well, how do we know? I mean, so the, the term conspiracy theory can be used um, pejoratively, just like mm -hmm. you know, just to dismiss somebody. Oh, those are just conspiracy um, theories. So I don't have to listen to it. But part of our, our learning experience in this project was to realize that it's not so simple. And that's not, it's not very charitable to just dismiss a point of view as a conspiracy theory. And I hope that this comes out today that it's part of engaging people in loving your neighbor is actually to start talking about these things, looking at the evidence together and affirming one another 
and, and how how they might have come to their own beliefs. And then I want to ask a question specifically, again, as I've been going through this book, I have found it to be very helpful. And the, the ways that you guys cover this is so helpful. Uh, in what ways are Christians, okay, susceptible to conspiracy? Yeah, so um, it's a really good question. And I think there are several chapters in the book that address it. I did want to mention, first off, it's not, I, I know you're not saying this, but it's not just Christians who are susceptible right. to conspiracy theories. This is a, this is a, what's the term? It's, it's a problem that's been around for a long time. In fact, I would recommend the book by uh, Jesse Walker, The United States of Paranoia, where he traces hmm. this idea of conspiracy theories throughout the, the history of the United States from the founding to today. This is mm. not something that's just like one group of people or one side of the aisle that has a problem with it. This is everywhere. But um, this is part of the purpose of this book. We're seeing it and we're concerned because we're seeing it in the church. And that breaks our heart to see people who are falling susceptible to these things. And so your question is, what what is it or why is it that Christians are susceptible to that? And I think there are several answers that could be given. I think it's just speculation at this point, at least on our part. Um, but there's the there's this us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. Evangelical Christians for the longest time have considered themselves to be in this culture war. Mm. And this culture war rhetoric leads to this type of uh, us versus them mentality. Um, also, there's this unhealthy marriage between evangelical Christianity and right-wing politics. Mm. Some segments of right-wing politics, it's a virtue to demonize the other side and to, to think the worst of them. And if you start out by trying to think the worst of the other side, I think it leads to things like this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would add, <clears throat> excuse me, I think even like at a sort of indi well, individual level as well, I think we just want to, human beings, like, the, I mean, our problem is pride, right? <laughs> the vicious yeah. forms of pride <laughs> is a, at the root of so much evil in us and in the world. And yeah, there's something about Wanting to, like being in the know, like I, I know the real story, like, you know, and you see this by the way, talk, people talk about like, you know, people who just don't believe conspiracy theory or QAnon, they're just sheeple or right? sheep, they're mindless, just follow whatever they're told. And so I think that that's part of it too. And so uh, needing more humility and really, I mean, when you said at the beginning, asking why, I mean, that's, you know, that's what Greg and I make mediocre wages for right asking why and helping students mm. learn how to do it as philosophers <laughs> right so if someone says asking the why question yeah. you know, that's what we do and so i think yeah i think it's right it is speculation but yeah i think there's that and i think too people i've read some stuff you know about this that you know fears can be a big motivating factor so there mm. are cultural shifts going on i mean you could, at least since the 60s and maybe more so the past 15 or 20 again and so one way to try to get control is we just can't live with not having clear, easy, I don't know if easy, clear, definitive answers, right? Not knowing things. And this kind of gives us a ready explanation for the stuff we don't like um, and separates the world into good and bad along these kind of partisan lines, even as Greg talked about, or you believe in the theory or you don't, um, us and them, yeah. Yeah, you guys specifically get into three types of conspiracies. And uh, I, I really like this idea that you don't just put a blanket statement out there. You, you give some nuance. And I think that's important because we can see that conspiracy functions at different tiers. 
it functions in different ways. It's not just one blanket summary of how a conspiracy works within a person or community. And so can you just for a moment give the three different types of conspiracists? Sure. And I think you're talking about chapter nine, which is Simmons and Carnahan's chapter. Yep. And he talks, they talk about uh, three types of conspiracists and say that uh, the evangelical conspiracist is just one of these. Well, they say that it's possible that evangelicals might find themselves in all, in all three. But the first type is the psychologically disposed conspiracist. And this is the individual conspiracist who's paranoid, who has trouble thinking rationally. Um, maybe we all know somebody like this, right? They're just, mm-hmm. they're just really having trouble thinking critically about things. Um, the second type is the social conspiracist. And that's the type of conspiracist who has this worldview or is enmeshed in this worldview that ha- that causes them to dismiss reliable sources of information. Mm. They're, they're living and breathing this culture that causes them to just to not be trusting what they should be trusting. And then the third type is the cultic conspiracist. And this is somebody who's, who's just basically signed their their mind away to a cult leader and, and, and allows the cult leader to, to decide everything for them. They don't have to think anymore. And so in that chapter, uh, Simmons and Carnahan say that they think the evangelical conspiracist finds themselves in the second, that's the, socio, the, socio, the social uh, conspiracist, in that there's this worldview that's been cultivated over the decades and centuries even, where it's um, like I described, this, there's this culture war going on, it's an mm-hmm. us versus them, and we can't trust the other side. There's this war going on. It's a spiritual war, but it's also a cultural war. And so we mm-hmm. can't trust these institutions that are part of our society. And so, I mean, we've seen this. I mean, I've seen this for decades, just growing and growing until what we've just seen in the last five years. Um, but, yeah, three types. You know, it's interesting because if, in, to your point, this isn't something that just functions in a secular sense, or this isn't just something that functions in churches. This is something that functions across the board. In one of the chapters, you guys actually talk about how the, uh, I think it's evangelical conservatives are more likely to believe in certain aspects of conspiracy than secular conservatives. And it wasn't just one domain, there were several I can't remember exactly what uh, what what page it was or what chapter, but I think before we even get into that, okay, in terms of some of these tendencies and leanings, uh, we probably should define the term evangelical. And I I, I want to say it's that's a really hard one. I remember when I was uh, in school, uh, it was impossible to define. I mean, is it four? Is it five things? I mean, it. it you know, I, in the book, you guys say anyone who likes Billy Graham, that's an evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just try to put together uh, just a simple definition of how we might term a, an evangelical. Yeah, I'll take this one. I think this is really difficult because I think it's changed. Like the way people use the term in the United States the past 10-ish years, especially since around 2015 to today, it's different. I mean, evangelical, that term started to be used back in the 20th century when, you know, the sort of the fundamentalist movement about the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Well, that wasn't a wasn't until fundamentalist became a kind of a bad word, right? That some of these uh, theological movement will become evangelical, right? Need a different term because what fundamentalism now means, that's not what we are. And I think there's something similar going on today. 
when you read, like I've done some, some research and reading about Christian nationalism in America. And when you start mm -hmm. reading who thinks of themselves as an evangelical and how the term gets used, it tends to have much more a political and cultural sort of significance. But I don't want to give up the word yet because it's a Bible word, right? The evangelion, the good news, the gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, historically, that kind of the classic definition that a lot of academics point to is oh, it's a guy's name, David Bevington, right? So there's the uh, centrality of the Bible, um, importance of a personal conversion, uh, cross-centered sort of theology and faith, and then an activism. So I want it to be that because um, those are the <laughs> theological distinctives, right? But but it looks like a lot of people who would self-identify as evangelicals, I mean, maybe they're not even, they don't even go to church necessarily, right. or not regularly. Um, so it's really difficult. So you can talk about sort of, I think today when we talk about white evangelical, which is kind of what comes up a lot in the book, it tends to be someone who's politically conservative, right? Um, and kind of the culture war approach to things, um, probably is a Republican, a pretty conservative Republican. Mm -hmm. um, thinks, I mean, I've had, well, yeah, all kinds of interesting and really frustrating conversations with people about this, right? That kind of a black and white, right? And it really does right. often come down to Republicans versus Democrats or Republicans versus Republicans in name only, right? There's sort of just this us against them thing. Um, and, it, and so I, yeah, that's, I want to go with that classic theological definition, but I think the way that people use evangelical now, it has those senses and almost, it has like the, it gives people a bad taste, like, like fundamentalists might. Um, and I actually asked some acquaintances, this, that was a couple of years ago. What's the first thing you think of when you think of evangelical in America? Um, hypocrisy came up, um, mm. and a lot of negative things. So that's concerning to me. And, and look, if the evangelical movement dies because there's no moral and spiritual reformation that leads to change, then good riddance, I would say, right? More concerned wow. about being a follower of Christ rather than, you know, than some category. But um, that's maybe a different <laughs> yeah. tangent, you know, for another time. But that's just something I've been concerned about. And I think, look, if, and this is why it concerns me, evangelicals, right? That sort of witnessing, sharing your faith with other people is a big deal. That's kind of common um, value doing evangelism but it, you know if my next door neighbor hears me going on about lizard people one day and it's sort of mm -hmm. weird out there queuing on stuff and then the next day i'm telling him yeah jesus actually rose from the dead uh may not find me credible in either count right and that that's what really concerns us uh, and not to disparage all conspiracy people who believe in a conspiracy but that's one of the things that really motivated us here related to this term evangelical yeah, I I would definitely say that right now uh, people have weaponized a need for certainty, and so uh, when I think of fundamental, when I think of evangelical, I think of an umbrella. I mean, you see this sort of at any denominational level, you see kind of this overarching, like the Southern Baptist Convention and so forth, like this overarching umbrella, and under it you find people who have a lot of. There's different tribes. But I think what I'm noticing on Sundays, and I go back again to what are the, the most simple observations we can make about the Christian community, specifically in the United States, is on Sundays, Sundays still are the most segregated day of the week. Now, here's what's important about that. I think that the, 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 what's changing 
is it's not just that it's a segregated day in terms of ethnicity. What we're now starting to see underneath that is that it is becoming very bipartisan. So churches, neighborhoods are becoming very, not bipartisan, but very sectarian in terms of political affiliations. And so I'm not going to go to that church because that is a progressive or a liberal church. I'm not going to go to that church because that's a fundamental or rigid church. And so that's happening within the white middle class or upper, whatever the spectrum is of evangelical circles. I'm starting to see that now there are many fracture points happening that are now turning, let's say, a mother against a daughter or a son against a father. And this is happening in the home. People this Thanksgiving potentially will not be talking. Uh, either we're not going to talk about politics or we're not coming. So this is something that has created an erosion in terms of people's family experience and family systems and so forth. So this this idea of an evangelical really has some pretty important implications, wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah, I mean, as philosophers, we think words matter, definitions matter, right? And there's kind of two ways. There's the you know, one way to go at it is just sort of the ordinary usage of a term, right? So, and there's ordinary language use of evangelical. We talk about that, how it changes. But we kind of want to, want to kind of, philosophers often want to get a, the pr- correct definition, right? What's really right. true. But it's just difficult with these kind of terms. I mean, you know, you could go back and say, well, no, a fundamentalist isn't all these bad things. It's just somebody mm-hmm. who believes in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. But why would you fight that battle today? That They're just, you're not going to win it. Um, and of course, I've never identified, well, never identified as a fundamentalist, but yeah, I think it matters. But I think what matters more is kind of the things you talked about, whatever we call ourselves, it's evangelical or Catholic or, you know, denominational stuff or what we have in common, you know, what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. And we're supposed to be following Jesus, following the way of Christ. And so that's the, that, that's what I think. You know, we don't agree with everything in the book and, you know, right. not everyone in the book agrees with our views, but we think that's yeah. good. And I think, look, we've got to try to learn from each other and, and take, you know, like, so I, my hope would be if somebody might read a chapter and think, oh, I don't agree with this thesis, but here's a good point. Right. And that can help them understand things, help them help a family member. I mean, we want someone to be able to sit down at Thanksgiving and love their conspiracy theory, um, believing mother or brother or sister-in-law. So. If you want to share something, Greg, about that, you're more than welcome, brother. Yeah, well, I think I think what you're describing is is really on my heart as well. But we're seeing this also divide conservative evangelical churches. I mean, hmm. so it's not just the liberals or progressives and the conservatives being divided by this, but even the churches, the conservative churches themselves, find themselves in a situation where they've got people who believe these things or who are further down that road than others, and they don't know what to do about this as well. So it's dividing the evangelical world as well. I mean, we, we did have some figures in the book that a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists in on the conservative side are evangelicals, or, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but that's true. But there are lots of, uh, lots of us who aren't. And so the question is how, what do we do? Like how how do we how do we handle that? And my my chapter on anger, I don't know if this is a good time to bring it up, is part Please. of that. It's part of that. It's is because in engaging people about this topic, I found so I have friends who believe this stuff and friends who don't. And so sometimes I try to 
put them into conversation. Like for example, mm. asking, um, for example, uh, I have a one friend who believes in flat earth theory. And so I've got another friend oh, wow. who, who's, an, who's a commercial airplane pilot. And so I said, let's, let's put them into conversation and have them talk about, you know, his experiences. He's been at altitude. He's seen the shape of the earth, but um, you know, things like that. But the more I try to put people like that in, in, into conversation, the, the harder I found it to be because people didn't want to talk about it. Like, especially on the non-conspiracy side, uh, they didn't want to talk to the people on the conspiracy. It was, it was like dismissive. Like, in, in, in my chapter, I call it, it's a type of contempt. It's not mm. anger. Like, the anger may be more manifest on the conspiracy theory side. You see it in the videos of January 6th, people rushing the Capitol. That's anger for you. On the other side, on the non-conspiracy theory side, there's this contempt for them. Why are they sullying our religion? Why are they dragging Jesus's name into the Senate building and you know and doing what they did, praying, you know, the QAnon shaman praying from the Senate chambers in the name of Jesus? Like that, that's deeply concerning. And then it turns into this type of contempt. Now we're not taught. Now we're angry at one another. It's dividing the church. Even the conservative evangelical world is being divided by this. And so my concern is to bring these two sides together and say, no, we have to figure out some way it's not always going to be possible we got to have some way to talk about this and understand one another loving our neighbors i think obviously means loving the person in the pew yep. not only loving your enemies but loving the people in your church and we're, we're having a hard time doing that right now so that's part of the purpose of my chapter thank, thank you for bringing that up i'm going to read here um from the book, but I, I thank you for bringing that up because we we forget that the thing that God, and I say this to people sometimes, that I think that the thing we're going to be most strictly judged on is how we loved one another. I, I think, we, yes, we think we're going to be very strictly judged on many different things, but I think the thing, I think we're going to be shocked at how God weighs that, that idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Like that's a big deal. 613 commandments are summarized really with loving God and loving others. And that's a really, that's at the heart of God. And so I love where you guys are keep bringing it back to, which is our job on this planet, very, very simply, okay, is to learn how to love. That is why we are here. We are here for one reason, and that is to learn how to love and what I'm noticing is that there is a level of unreasonableness that we're seeing within churches, and 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 we're becoming known for that. First Peter three talks about let your, um, you know, that Jesus needs to be Lord, and with gentleness and respect, make sure that people understand where you're coming from. But gentleness, according to Paul's theology, in many ways is something we should be known for. Yet we find, I love this on page. Um, Oh gosh, page 61. Okay. It says here, put most simply, Christians are and ought to be people of strong conviction. However, I love this term, the conviction dial of many believers has only one setting, maximum strength, because followers of Jesus are a minority community defined by core beliefs and value commitments often at odds with their surrounding culture. Sustaining these beliefs and commitments over time requires holding them as strong, yielding convictions, standing firm, having hills we're willing to die on, no yielding, no compromise. But not all hills are ones to die on, much 
less kill on. And not all yielding is wrong. It's simply not true that compromise anywhere leads inevitably to compromise everywhere. Yielding and compromise may be exactly what's called for in situations where truly essential matters are not at issue. Wow, very important. I, I think that that's a really important issue right now. What is an essential? Um, and then it says here, losing our convictions. So allowing non-negotiable and central commitments to drift and become negotiable and peripheral is not only a threat to Christian faithfulness, so is also confusing our convictions, allowing secondary beliefs and opinions or preferences to creep into primary status. Very important. And then it says here, lastly, um, uh, let's see here, more of a why false tolerance and compromise the notions that no ideas are any truer than any other, that all convictions are negotiable, are clearly incompatible with holding faithfully to Christian convictions. You guys are not saying that there aren't hills that are worth dying on. You're not saying that Christianity now becomes this diffuse philosophy, this ideology that's just like all the other. You guys aren't trying to tear down the faith. You're not trying to tear apart scripture in a way that it is, um, you know, deconstructed harmfully. You guys are simply saying that at times our conviction dial kind of gets put on over, it, it gets overdone. And I thought that was really profound. I've, I've sent this to several people, this this very page I just read to you. I didn't read the whole thing. Can you guys share a little bit more about that? Sure, I'll take this one. And Mike, if you want to comment on it. This is David Horner's chapter on, it's called The Lost Christian Virtue of Reasonableness. And that's exactly mm. what he's talking about. Is um, He's talking about reasonableness in a term. So we use that term in different ways, but he's talking about it in a moral sense. So how, how do we engage one another? How can we be, re when somebody says, please be reasonable, what they're talking about is let's, let's, let's agree to disagree. Let's not be so, get, get so caught up in this. And like you said, he's talking about keeping first things first, <clears throat> not right. confusing what's most important with what's less important. And I think, I mean, I'm just maybe cynical, but I look at the church and I think we have a long history of confusing what's most important. I mean, just look at all mm. the denominational splits. I, just it's we split over the, the the dumbest things and and that just seems to be an example of of this but what reasonableness calls us to and he makes a great case of this from scripture uh to get along get along with one another and let's let's unite over what unites us that is jesus and let's let's leave all these other things and there are a ton of other things we could just we can move beyond conspiracy theories if you like theological issues you know worship styles let's move beyond these other things and learn to live together that's that's what reasonableness is yeah and i just think there's such a it just seems like i don't know i've said this a lot in the past four or five years now that i'm in my 50s i'm all reflective and stuff even more <laughs> but um <laughs> is embarrassing now but i'm supposed to you know i'm working on humility like i kind of have christmas christianity thing down here's and then i kind of like had probably more convictions i guess about secondary things than i do now and i'm not saying those things don't matter right but i think over time it's like the central convictions that i really would like stake my life on they're a lot fewer but i hold them a lot deeper uh, one of them is what you just mentioned that you know 
loving God, neighbors, yourself. Of course, that has social implications, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, like Cornel West says, you know, justice is what love looks like in public. So I don't want to get caught mm. up in the sort of individualistic, I just love in my little sphere. I think that's crucial, but it, it's good. Well, we'll discuss this some later, maybe. But yeah, there, and that's part of this. There's culture. There are people out there that if we're going to love my neighbor that are suffering for, from all kinds of things, one of them is some of the harm done by conspiracy theories. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that we just have to learn. I mean, if the, if Christians denominationally, ethnically, historically, or whatever in America, if we can't disagree about things well, then yeah, we're in big trouble because it's not just the loving your neighbor. It's that, the world will know you're my disciples by your love and by being mm-hmm. united. Right? It talks about unity. Be one as I and the Father are one. We'll come. I mean, I look around, I'm not seeing a lot of that. Now, sure, it's distorted a little bit by media and social media, but I think we all can say we're, we're not uh, scoring what we need to on the unity scale here in America. And if we can do that, right, united around God and his kingdom, around those essentials of love and, and agree to disagree on the secondary issues um man we could see some radical transformation happen in the church and in our in our society well our society is so polarized i think if we can't come together in the church there's really no hope for society i mean we're Mm. supposed to be united over with over jesus and we're we're having trouble doing that so how can such a society like ours that is so diverse ever come together if a small group well small smallish group like the church can't even do it. We're so divided. So I think it really needs to happen in the church. We need to figure out how to get through these things. And hopefully this book helps that. So I want to, I want to talk about this idea of tough Teflon hermeneutics. I love the little coinages that you guys have on page 93. And I won't read it. I'll let you guys explain a little bit more. Uh, but that term, the battle for the soul, that is something that I think characterizes the, the the thrust the heat of people's passion around some of these things um in other words we take something that is a non-essential and because of an ideology or a way of looking at the world and we maybe are circling the wagons we now convert that or elevate that to something that is in our minds essential we see that matthew is a polemic against how the pharisees did that the pharisees were really good at taking non-essentials and elevating them and so Jesus essentially has to come through and re-preach re, re Torah. <laughs> um, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so I think there's a, a need. We need Jesus so much right now as our lead evangelist. We need the Holy Spirit to really lead us because I think that the essentials have been recharacterized. And now behind that, you do see different aspects of Teflon hermeneutics let me give you guys a moment to define that i love i love that term mm-hmm. sure that's from chapter nine that's simmons and carnahan's term and i think it's a great term i wish i had come up with it but uh, his <laughs> uh, what they say is they're what they're describing is a characteristic of social of a social conspiracist so they're describing and this isn't i wouldn't say it's just evangelicals or Christians that have this, yeah. you see this with anybody who's strongly committed to a view, but what they're describing is, is a characteristic of this worldview that, as I mentioned earlier, has undermined reliable sources of knowledge. Mm. And so it's not, if you're going to get into discussion with somebody like this, more evidence or more information is not going to help. It's just going to slide right off. Your criticisms mm-hmm. of their point of view 
your your evaluation of their position is not going to it's again teflon it's gonna, it's, there's no stick it doesn't they're, they're gonna it's, you would think that the evidence that you might be able to provide like um, I don't know, medical science, uh, NASA photographs, whatever it is we're talking, whatever conspiracy theory we're talking, would count, would count as evidence in these conversations. But you find the more you get in, into some of these conversations, it doesn't count. And what this is describing is this, this thing that this worldview has removed the possibility of conversation. It has hmm. removed the possibility of criticism. And I think it's a great term. Greg, did you want to add anything to that? Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think I think we see it. Uh, yeah, it's present in Christian and evangelical spaces. But look, as a professor, I see it in, in I'm, I'm students. It's a it's a human nature thing. I think the problem is that some of our communities have sort of fostered this and mm -hmm. reinforced it rather than trying to push back and say, look, and this goes to my chapter, right? Humility just means I recognize my limits. I can be wrong about stuff. Um, just because I feel convinced by something doesn't mean it's true. Look, I tell my students this usually at the start of every semester. I know I've got false beliefs right now because I'm human. And I don't know which ones they are because if I if I did, hopefully I would change my mind about them. But I think we've just got like a, this goes into the polarization, the culture war. Sort of like if I give up one thing. That I'm no longer being like faithful to, as you mm. as you pointed out, faithful to my tribe or my church or ultimately God. And so, and I've had conversations with people about theology, politics, ethics, this stuff. And look, I can we I think if we're reflective on our own selves, we can see it. Like I think about like I've written some I've written on other controversial issues, a book on guns and ethics, and I had to constantly be on Christian ethics, constantly be checking myself to like my initial reaction to some kind of counter evidence was just no, instead of, okay, well, is this good? Is there a good counter argument? And I think we all have that initial resistance, but that's why yeah, becoming like Christ and following him in his humility and his courage, reasonableness, all these things matter, like who we are matters. And I feel like to me, a big core of the problem is we're not making disciples. We're just getting people to pray a prayer maybe and then mm. check the box you know as dallas willard puts it barcode christianity i'm scanned i can get into heaven or the new heavens and new earth i'm good but jesus wants much more than that right we're supposed to be his disciples so yeah those things jump to mind and so the tough so the the antidote to teflon hermeneutics is being in a, a flourishing healthy christian community where the virtue you know, virtues like humility and courage and reasonableness are exemplifies praise taught challenged when they're when they're not there um but i think it's i think our communities are often fostering this kind of thing that, that simmons and carnahan talk about yeah I, I i i very much would second everything you guys are saying about more even the idea of more facts don't lead to let's say uh you winning the the point and and i really i think this is a great time to lean on both of you and your experience and expertise as educators. You know, you guys, in some ways people think, okay, the most important thing for an educator is to convince people or to teach people so that they can score a certain way or whatever. But even the way you think as educators, the way you think, I think in many ways is 
important that we have this discussion because you are there exchanging ideas uh, with with people. You you know when the lights start coming on. You know when someone's leading with defensiveness. You know when someone is scared. And there's a lot of fear that really is involved with changing our belief system, even from a psychological perspective. When you look at people who have a profile, and not from a trauma perspective, but just they have this part of them that they're more of a black and white thinker, what we see is that they have a high need for closure. They have a high need for certainty. The only issue we see with people who have a, a psychologically a high need for certainty is they typically rush to bias. They're early to stereotype. So let's just say for a moment that there is a level of certainty that certain churches promise, and there's a very binary way of looking at the world. Well, you bring people in who maybe the older generation that works really well for, but I can assure you the next generation, that's not working. The ne- and you guys are interfaced with the next generation constantly. They have questions that are not between the lines. They have questions that are outside of the margins. The next generation, they're asking questions about these discrepancies. They're asking about things that create dissonance. <laughs> these little you know, puppy dog answers, love puppy dogs, by the way, but these overly simplified answers, that's not enough for them. And it's not because they're disobedient or arrogant. Yes, they're all of those things, of course. Where do they get it from? Us. <laughs> but, um, but they have good questions. And so let me just give you guys both a soapbox moment for what you guys are seeing in terms of from your perspective on the next generation. I I 100% agree. I think if we don't take their questions seriously, their doubts seriously, we're going to lose them. We're going to lose the next generation in the church. Wow. I know growing up in the church, um, I I became a Christian um, when I was 20, but, you know, went to church and started asking questions, which is partly why I became a philosopher. Oh, wow. You know, know, not everybody likes those questions in church. So I I learned that quickly. But instead of like (laughs) leaving church, I decided I try to stay and try to help help us all think better about that. And so, you know, that's part of, partly again, why this project uh, exists. But um, yeah, if we, if we don't take those questions seriously, if we're not more comfortable with doubts, if we're not more comfortable with being uncertain, then yeah, we're gonna lose a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of Christians and churches deal with doubt. Like if somebody has doubts, if doubts are present, that's bad. Mm. But it's not really what's bad are doubts that we fail to discuss and address and interact with. And that's right. what's unhealthy. So, and look, it's okay for a pastor just to say, I don't know. That's a really good question. I never thought of that. Or it's kind of this weird tension in my sense. And maybe, I don't know if this is Greg's experience too. I see a lot of my students and I'm, I'm in Eastern Kentucky. So public university. So I've got students all, you know, the whole gamut of belief and religious belief, but a lot of people with Christian backgrounds there's this tension where they don't want to say anything or ask anything because they're afraid of making a mistake or maybe they're just afraid of, you know, yeah, there's just a more of a reticence to discuss in the, in the past five or six years than when I first got here in 2004. It's a lot harder to get them to open up and talk. But they also, as Greg said, have these deeper questions. And so it's like they have these questions, that, but they're afraid to ask them. And then the church probably fosters that fear by how it talks about doubt often. So Mm. Yeah, it, and and what what's resolves that stuff? It's, it's the culture of the church leadership, but also it's just relationships, right? So, yeah. 
Um, if I'm approaching a student or a friend or the, the guy next to me at church who was into QAnon or whatever it is in humility and love, and they see that I'm trustworthy, that's then, and that happens in the context of love, then you can make progress. When I look, I mean, I, I just pray God every semester, help me love my students, whatever that means. Sometimes it means, you know, you fail this assignment because you use chat GPT for your answer. Other times it means, yeah, you've got an extension because you know, you've got some trauma. I mean, I've had students lose a parent in the middle of the semester. Oh, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like just, you know, and some, some professors are not good at just seeing students as humans. So, mm. so I think the next generation, look, when I, I went in the eighties in high school and college, and that was the greed is good era. Like be a, if you follow Jesus, this will give you what you want, not health and wealth and prosperity, but you'll life's going to kind of go well for you. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't students. They don't have that misconception, I think. And that's good. They don't have a privatized faith. They realize that their mm -hmm. faith actually should influence, you know, all the cultural issues, but yeah, they just need help to think well and in a safe environment um, where they can be loved. And yeah. So I have high hopes that if, that maybe they'll outstrip what we've done in our generation, sure. maybe right some of the wrongs and um, yeah, that we could see, you know, the church function more as that, that place of sort of witnessing to and advancing God's kingdom of, you know, righteousness, justice, peace, love, all that stuff, not us versus them, culture wars. And um, yeah, man, if we could, you know, you mentioned this earlier, if we could achieve some kind of, make more progress towards ethnic, racial unity, those kind of things in the church. I can't imagine a better witness in our nation right now than that. Mm. Yeah. Before we get to that, cause I, I do want to create a little bit of space for that. I want to actually make sure that I, I cover what QAnon is. <laughs> I, uh, hmm. I heard about QAnon, uh, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago, but I, when I researched it, uh, it was 8chan, but I think even before that it was 4chan. And they don't actually know the guy who created it. Um, but what's interesting is this is a very timely conversation because there's a movie that just came out called Sound of Freedom. Jim Caviezel talking about the sex trade industry with child children and so forth. Um, I really look forward to seeing it. It's going to be, I have two little ones, so I'm, I, I'm, you had mentioned being reticent. I'm, I, I, I got to get myself ready to see this. What's interesting is the pushback that's coming about this movie. And I would think, well, how could anyone, how could anyone push back against a movie that is made about finding kids who were put into the child trafficking industry? How, how could anyone at all have anything negative to say about that? Well, what was interesting is this is because of QAnon, well, because of QAnon, because people are associating what people are saying in this documentary with beliefs that you see with QAnon. In other words, QAnon, they definitely have latched on. I mean, the whole lizard people thing and all that, like they, because in some ways it supports what QAnon has been saying with certain things, not everything, um, people are writing it off, which is so unfortunate because there is a lot of rhetoric that needs to be toned down. And when things happen, people, their brains just make general associations. And I just think it's so unfortunate that this is happening. But anyway, 
because Sound of Freedom is connected with QAnon, it's getting pushback. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is this is inappropriate. Anyway, um, let's describe QAnon for the average person. How do we describe it? Yeah, I think you're right. So it was 2017, I want to say, was when the first stuff dropped on 4chan. All right, so Q is supposed to be this anonymous person who's got doesn't have the highest security clearance, but you know has some. And so there's the basic idea is there's like a a cabal or a nefarious group of you know sort of entertainment, media, and politics, Democrats, Hollywood liberals. They're all on the left, and like this basically giant child sex trafficking ring, right? Um, and so so Q releases information predictions about this stuff and then what's supposed to happen is at some point and this is where trump comes in trump's like fighting this secret battle that's what because this came out during his term and the, the truth is going to be made known all these people are going to be there's gonna be like this mass arrest where we all see that QAnon or q is right all the time and then they will usher in like this utopian age or something um now what's difficult now as it's been around six or seven years is that so much stuff happens under the umbrella of QAnon. I mean, there are mutually contradictory claims, predictions that haven't come true. You know, I think JFK was supposed to reappear in Dallas a few years ago, and that didn't happen. So, but yeah, QAnon it, it uses a lot of, and I think this is one reason some Christians are attracted to it. It's got a lot of good versus evil language, us versus them, spiritual warfare kind of stuff, right? That kind of these, these sort of eschatological sort of um big picture things and so yeah people kind of believe that, that you know there's this battle going on and these people need to be held to account and that they will hmm. so i don't know if greg has more to add that's kind of the gist as far as you know yeah off the top of my head no i think the chapter does a good job in the book about the religious rhetoric of QAnon, showing how it is so attractive to christians because whoever this person is dresses up these claims in religious rhetoric. So hmm. using terms that you would find in the church, a sermon or something. Um, so it makes it sound like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a spiritual battle that they're, they're, they're fighting. So that draw, I don't, I don't understand why it's so appealing. I mean, I'm sure he's wasn't the, or whoever it was, wasn't the only one who's ever posted stuff like this on 4chan, but why, this one why did this take off i think there are several documentaries out there that try to identify who it was or why and, and make you know better speculations than we can we can do but whatever it's like it's here and people all you know all walks of life and especially in the church have been attracted to it yeah and i think what people don't understand is that these forums heat up and they they take on a life of their own they truly do. I've had this happen with my channel where, I mean, I was, forums basically have me on a wanna poster or whatever, and they will, it heats up with unstable people. And again, we're all damaged, right? But sometimes, I mean, you just don't know how, how damaged someone is. And let's just say they get ideas and then they take it to the next level. And that happens all the time. You don't understand, like people don't understand how un unhinged certain people are because they've been through really hard times in their lives and maybe they miss developmental milestones and there are certain deficits that we are unaware of and we have digitized people all over the place and all you see is this little online avatar 
that is not representative of real life and what's really going on in their hearts. And so I, I, I'm not trying to pick on any forum in particular. I want to be very careful. That being said, when these sort of things heat up, and I'm not saying that January 6th is reflective of what happened um, or that, uh, that, that QAnon is responsible for January 6th, but these are the types of things that go into when something detonates, so to speak. Th there's many conversations that have been facilitated, uh, sometimes for years. And so I, I, I'm not saying I would caution someone against joining the community, but I would just be very mindful. And you guys give really good examples of how to, how to help people. I would be also remiss before we get in our last question. Uh, both of you wrote chapters in this, and I I want to make sure that I ask you about your chapter before I, I get you off the podcast because I it's very important to me that I understand what you wrote because you guys didn't write the whole thing. So. Uh, tell us a little bit about the chapters that you wrote. Well, I think I've already spoken about anger. That was my chapter. Um, and again, I was just exploring the anger problem that it seems like conspiracy theorists have. But then I also try to balance it with the other side. Like, are we, are we, do we have an anger problem? Those of us who don't subscribe to these views and how can we again, come together and love our neighbors, uh, especially those of us who are in the church. So I don't know if there's much more to add, but Mike, do you want to talk about yours? Yeah, I did a little bit. I guess uh, things that jump to mind to add, I guess a couple points. One is that we, part of humility is accepting our limits. And so mm. think about from 2020, well, 2019 till today, there are people who have firm convictions about all this stuff about um, right, vote, the voting, electronic voting, right, computerized mm. voting. Um, immunology, the efficacy of masks, international relations between Ukraine and Russia, World Bank and financial systems, and on and on and on. Like, all the, like people just have these deep convictions about all that stuff. And I just want to say, there's no way you can have that. There's just, you can't be an expert about everything. You can know more and you can mm. read and learn and grow. And I think the second point related to that is, and I asked this in my, and I ask it of myself, and I ask it, ask people to ask it in the chapter. If, all the areas of life or domains where I reject expert consensus for some minority view, I think that's that's one way humility can come in to play and really help is just to accept our limits. Yeah, we can have beliefs, but just realize you can't, you, none of us can just know stuff about everything, about all that mm. stuff, and especially if we're going to challenge expert consensus. Now, experts are wrong because they're human too. Um, that's not my point, but it's that it's a good sort of self-examination thing. What's really driving what I believe? Um, and I think sometimes those answers, they should be sometimes uncomfortable for us and lead to some change. Well, I want to talk about something that is uncomfortable. Um, and it, it's in the chapter, it's much worse than you think. Um, it says, but evangelicals perceive themselves as among the most oppressed groups in the country. One poll shows that the majority of white evangelicals believe Christians face more discrimination in the United States than do Muslims. And then it says, rather than identifying with the oppressed, contemporary white evangelicals identify as the oppressed. Among their oppressors, they include the institutions of mainstream media and science. Thus, and it says here, again, this is the position of this author in this, in this chapter, they make fundamental mistakes about how to distinguish 
propagandists from relatively reliable sources of truth. You just mentioned humility. I want to mention resentment. And I think there uh, is quite a bit of class anger that we are seeing. Um, if you are in the white middle class, you don't trust the rich and you feel robbed by the poor. Um, I believe that there is a reason, and again, I'm gonna. this is very uncomfortable and controversial for me to say this, but um, it's been said that the white middle class is the forgotten tribe of America. And many churches, uh, in terms of how they're comprised, is very much reflective of the white middle class. Now, I I want to I want to say something that I think makes all of this controversial, and it's on page one forty here, and it talks about this idea that people have a framework where they believe what the Bible says, and and you and on this it literally says here blindly trust biblical writers with faith alone, regardless of one's historical proximity to the facts they may suggest otherwise, and not faith and reason. Um, what it's basically saying on page 140 in summary is, you have many white evangelicals who are terribly skeptical of American history over across the last 400 years. Very cynical, very uh, hesitant to believe what we see, and even with CRT, not getting into critical race theory too much, but this re-examination of history is met with skepticism and distrust and resentment. Um, it's an affront. It's it's an insult. <laughs> um, but then we trust very very much what we see two thousand years ago. And it's not the issue that we accept that, it's the issue that we accept it on a level of faith that even if we don't understand the history of it, we still accept it. And, and there's a contradiction there. Literally, there's a logical fallacy there because we're not just talking about a, a belief, we're talking about history. That's the part that I, I see as incongruent, which is this idea of, okay, if you trust the Bible, in its context, why wouldn't you trust the way that history in the last 400 years, I would say even more meticulously, well, maybe not more meticulously has been sort of, um, you know, collected, but why do you think there's that dissonance? Why do you think that there is this skepticism to trust American history, but we trust scripture or at least what we read in scripture with no question at all? Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, the chapter Dominique Turnipseed. He's finished up his PhD in philosophy at Marquette that, that you're drawing this from. And yeah, big picture, this, like, as, philo as Christian philosophers, Greg and I think, I mean, I'll speak for myself and probably I think he would hold the same thing. Like, we think faith and reason go together, right? I mean, so, you know, which many people don't in our society. Or if you ask, like, the sort of person, I was going to say person on the street, probably person on the web or on Twitter or whatever these days, faith, like a, people think of faith as like apart from or even a belief apart from or against reason. Mm. But look, the, whether you go back to the scriptures or Christian, we've got 2000 years of like wonderful Christian thought where people said, no, faith is rational. Yeah, there's it doesn't mean we understand everything or don't have questions, but you can give good reasons for why faith in God um, 
is logical or rational. And so I think, yeah, I think the fallacy here, if you're going to just have blind faith, right, and say, well, I just trust, believe the Bible because, you know, that's without like having any reasons for it. I mean, God can still use that, but I don't think that's going to, I think God wants to take us further than that, right? He wants to grow. I mean, faith is thought of in a lot of Christian, in the Bible, I would say, as kind of a good character of intellectual and moral virtue and trusting ourselves to God. But if you're going to say, look, I believe everything the Bible writers said, and you've never looked at the evidence, you just kind of take it on on faith in that sense, but you're going to reject every all the history that's much closer, that in a certain sense we've got more evidence for just because it's more recent and, you know, writing and books have been, have been around. We're not, we're not relying on copies of ancient scrolls. I think what he's pointing out is there's a, a contradiction or a deep tension there. So it's sort of like people who believe the Bible on faith also believe in conspiracy theories on sort of a similar blind faith, but then they reject right the, the history of race in America for 400 years. That's a problem. Um, and that really, I think what he's saying is if we bring reason into the picture, the way that, that God, you know, I mean, it's God that is the one that said, come, let us reason together, right? In the mm-hmm. Old Testament, that wasn't, that wasn't Satan, that was God. Yeah. But if we bring reason into <laughs> it, um, we can have a healthier Christian faith, see the Bible's trustworthy. But if we apply that same God-given gift of reason and look, try to look as dispassionately as we can, I'm not speaking as a white American here where, where mm-hmm. maybe that's where resentment or defensiveness comes up. You just, to me, it's hard to, you can't escape it. Um, the conclusion about the, the harm that race racism has done and continues to do. I'm sure we've made progress, but that doesn't mean we're done. We've got a ways to go. So I think that's the, the fallacy here is whatever reasons you could give to trust the Bible and its history, looking at it as a document of history, mm-hmm those same things would you, sh- you should believe in the history um, last 400 years of America. Now, of course, there's a difference, right? If you're a Christian, you think the Bible in some sense is inspired. It's God's yes. word and historians aren't inspired. But I think what he's pointing out is if we just look at them rationally on just the evidence, all right, that for them being accurate histories, they, I think he's what he's wanting to say. And I think this is right. They stand or fall together just on the, on the evidence, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to be rational. You've got to, you should, if you're going to accept the Bible as history, you should accept the evidence of, you know, the history of our country. The difficulty is, and I think you write this resentment thing and I mean, I've seen it and I was challenged, gosh, I don't know how many years ago now to, and it made me realize I didn't read a lot outside, like the natural, if I just followed sort of the standards of research in my discipline, because philosophy is notoriously male and predominantly white male in America. Um, those are the kind of authors that would come up. You have to be intentional, right, to, in many ways, to find, say, a, a black author or, I mean, women have made more strides recently, but because of feminism and the strength of that, but they, they still have a long way to go too. So being intentional about it. And then I brought this up with somebody who was arguing against this. And I said, well, ha- have you read like five works by a black theologian? So I don't care who, I don't care. I mean, just any of them. And well, no, they read something by Thomas Sowell and that was it. Right? Oh. Um, yeah, and so, but, but my point is they were so angry at me for saying that you should, as a spiritual discipline, read from the his- the black church. Um, because there's a rich history of theology, practice, social activism. And so, 
Yeah, I think, I guess I'll, here's a story that I'll let Greg chime in if he wants or we can interact more, but it makes me think of a student I had two years ago. So 18 year old from a white student, male from a just poverty, right? And so he did his final paper on that, that it's class and not race that's really the issue, right? And so I understood where he was coming from because yeah. of his experience, right? And what his dad said. And so to tell him, no, you've got white privilege, that doesn't make sense to his experience. Right. Um, but he does like all else being equal. He, I think that's still true. I think he still does. And so the, it was a great discussion in the class, you know, people did a great job interacting with him and back and it was kind of the, I mean, I couldn't believe how well it went, but I think that's part of the deal, right? If you tell certain people, it's like, even in the middle class who feel forgotten, like, well, you didn't get there on your own. You had help. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Well, we all had help to get where we are, first of all. And second of all, it's just being humble enough to say, yeah, I had some help. I did a lot, you know, because I worked hard. But people, other people in America, black men and women, other um, minorities face challenges. I don't. Um, and just to, say, just to say that for some reason, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's our individualism in America. I don't know what it is, but probably a mix of those things. Um, people push back. So, yeah, I think I was really glad that his initial chapter was going to be a, a different direction, but the way it ended up going, I thought was really good because he's couching these cultural issues and stuff about the Bible conspiracy theories in this larger issue that all of us face. It's like, how do we bring faith and reason together in ways that mm -hmm. um, there's an authentic trust in God, but also I'm using my God-given mind as well as I can. Right? We don't have to have PhDs in, or college degrees or anything, but you know, but we do need to use the gifts we've been given and, and try to honor God and glorify God with our minds. Mike, I think that's it. Real quick before Greg goes, Mike, I think that's it. I think for people, if they're using their brains, they feel like they're not using their hearts or their faith. And, and if I if I if it has to make like I even think about what Jesus did with da with uh, Thomas, he invited him into the wound, <laughs> um, literally. Uh, he Jesus deals with skeptics. Uh, Paul deals with skeptics. Um, and so I love what you were saying earlier about it. doubts are doubts are part of the relationship and the process of things. Um, but I think honestly, at least in the circles that I come from, it is that no, we just need to we need to just trust. We and, and trust means that we selectively rationalize. <laughs> I, and I, I got to be honest, I do think there's some selectivity in how we rationalize. Um, but yes, I think that that dichotomy is overwhelming for many people who read their Bibles the way they read it. Um, anyway, Greg, Greg, you, you were going to say something. I don't have much to add. I thought both of you did a great job describing the, the issue. The only thing I guess I'll say is his chapter, he cites Thomas Aquinas and his model of faith and reason. And I think what we've been describing is an inconsistency among believers who hold one thing on faith and the other thing on, on whatever. And I, and I think that's right. I, I think this just goes back to the point we talked about earlier about reasonableness, about keeping first things first. Mm -hmm. You brought up CRT earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that, I mean, I, I, I have friends when, when that term comes up, it's just like the walls go up and that, oh, that's yeah. an indication that something else is going on. And I think that, that just, I think Christians should be willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. I just think that we're so politicized and polarized these days, and that's affected the church as well, that we can't see straight, that we have these cognitive biases. And when these terms 
however they're adopted by whichever political side come up, then we have these walls and we stop thinking rationally. As Christian philosophers, I think we believe that we should approach whether it's political ideologies or beliefs or religious beliefs with reason, then we should be humble. We should be open-minded. All the virtues we talked about today should be character, you know, should exemplify, be exemplified in the church. And I think that that's what he's speaking to in the chapter. It is not. And if we were to more embody what Thomas Aquinas is, is arguing for, this balance of faith and reason, I think it could be a much better witness. Okay, I know we're over time, but I want to ask you guys, both of you, a, a very important question as it relates to this idea of uh, deconstruction then. Um, both of you are at the epicenter of, of whatever we think that term means. Um, and the reason why I say whatever we think it means is because whether it be woke, whether it be CRT, which is a, a critical lens, it's interesting, uh, a historical lens is really what I hear when I hear a critical lens. I'm thinking about the history of thought, the history of interpret, like there's a history of, of, of thinking about this. And so even with CRT, if you ask people, what is CRT? Or you ask them, what does it mean to be woke? I find the majority of people on social media or just the common person, they don't actually term deconstruction, which I think, I think in some ways deconstruction is occurring, but I think even more, uh, even more in a subversive way, decolonialization is occurring. So in other words, we're looking at the world from a colonial perspective, but didn't know that we were. And so as we are deconstructing things or creating a framework that allows us to look at the history of it and the implications of that history, you guys are both at the intersect of that. Both of you, every time you teach, <laughs> uh, you're teaching people to think critically. I think what some people think then is that what that means is, is that you're taking the faith out of it or you're bringing something in the secular world into it. I would disagree, but I want to give both of you an opportunity to respond to that 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 uh, that assertion. Yeah, to me it goes back to what we just mentioned a minute ago when you talked about sort of the mind versus the heart. And I mean, it's going to sound weird, but actually that that's not really the. I mean, the Bible looks at it differently. I think you know that's kind of what Plato talked about a little bit more: this war in the soul. I think the Bible, the heart, the way it uses the term is the core of who we are and the mind's mm -hmm. an aspect of that, you know, the emotion. So it's, it's, those things are like tightly related. And so I guess what I would say about the deconstruction stuff is that, yeah, it's used in different ways. So for some people to deconstruct means to just leave the faith. Right. But for others, it means kind of what you've talked about. And look, I would say in a certain sense, I've gone through that process in this past seven or eight years in terms of, for me, it's well, what actually... What are some of the things that are sort of cultural add-ons or lenses that I've been taught to see that I've just assumptions I've made about my faith? And then like stepping mm. back and reading outside of my traditions and thinking, no, you know, there, there are different ways of being a Christian because we just can't know everything, right? And so rather than being suspicious of a non-evangelical or a Catholic or a progressive Christian or an ultra-conservative, whatever it is, we just need to like set that kind of stuff aside and like and think well, we want to be authentic followers of jesus that and if something's leading us to be prideful arrogant callous mm -hmm. dismissive have anger contempt right then then something's gone wrong somewhere either in what we believe or in how we're applying it um, so that's what i would say and i think yeah you to say that 
bringing reason into it weakens faith. For me, it's been the opposite, right? So when, right. when you go through trials or suffering, I can say I believe X, Y, and Z about God and about Jesus. But when something's really on the line, um, and when you get older, in your 50s, you start thinking about death, I'm like, do I actually think that there is that there is this new heavens and new earth, that, that, that Jesus really rose from the dead, that God's going to raise me, or am I just going to like rot in the ground? I mean, there's a time where you think, do I really believe this? And the, and and your life depends on it, right? Um, it's like, and I guess I'll say one more thing about it that I thought of. Think about like, out, think about other kinds of faith. So I've got like utmost faith in my wife, like just in who she is as a person in our marriage. But it's not blind. It's because I've gotten to know, and as I've gotten to know her better over thirty years of marriage, my faith has actually deepened because I see mm. that she's she's faithful and trustworthy. And so I think that's what it is with God, right? It's we don't just have faith. God, but we start seeing oh, God's faithfulness over the years, we've got more evidence, more data, so to speak, to see, you know, in this instance where I don't see a way through this trial or why God would allow this, I can look back on the history of his faithfulness in my life, in the church, in Israel, you know, that's what they do in the Psalms over and over. So I want us to see those things working together because uh, you can know a lot of stuff and not have faith. Mm -hmm. um, but a deeper, healthy faith integrates knowledge, um, but with an acceptance of our limits and the mystery that, you know, God is still God and we're human. So those are the things that come to my mind. Yeah. I really don't have anything to add. I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, like, I, if you got a philosopher to not add anything, then I guess I'm going to really <laughs> This is like one of the first times I've, I've, I've legit had philosophers on, which I, I just feel so honored and so grateful. I, this is a, a great witness to the fact that someone can be a philosopher and also be a follower. And so I, I think, again, we have these radicalized uh, ideas about people who, you know, are maybe not an eye or they're not a hand, but they're still a part of the body. And it's really, I think, really, it's stretching a lot of people. Either they're being stretched or they're being stressed. Uh, but I just want to thank both of you. Thank you for putting the energy into getting the authors to write this book, for editing it, to writing, um, to being to being in a situation where we can we can all have this. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about sharing it. I'm going to be sharing it on social media, my Patreon account. By the way, if, if those of you watching right now, the best way to support me is through Patreon. But on YouTube podcasts, I'm going to make sure that everyone that I know um, at least has an opportunity to know about it. And I want to tell both of you what I tell all of my guests, that we are with you and God is for you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for the invitation.